Uh, a few preliminaries before we, uh, before we pray and go into the passage. Uh, from talking to various people last Sunday and indeed over the week, I can see we've been having lots of conversations uh, about Song of Songs. Isn't that great? Uh, Tim Phillips began our series last week with an excellent sermon on the previous passage, and that's triggered lots of discussion. Uh, I know some growth groups are studying the passages ahead of the sermon, have been really wrestling with the text, uh, trying to work out what it's saying, uh, and I'm sure there are lots of individuals uh, doing that as well. Uh, reading poetry, uh, especially this kind of poetry, takes a different kind of thinking than reading Luke's Gospel or Hebrews or, or Deuteronomy, isn't it? Uh, and so we're being stretched, uh, and that's good. Uh, because we're learning to apply our minds to the scriptures uh, to see how that, that, that works for us, how it applies to us, even though it's difficult. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16 to 17, uh, tells us that all scripture is God-breathed. Uh, it's, it's on the slide coming up. Uh, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Song of Songs is one of those scriptures, isn't it? Right? And so uh, uh, we, uh, yeah, we're, we're working on this because we know that it is God-breathed, it is profitable. Uh, some of us have looked at the commentaries. Uh, commentaries can be helpful in some ways, especially in the meaning of words or phrases. I've actually read lots of commentaries on Song of Songs, and I find it not so helpful because they all put things together in a different way. Um, and so, you know, which one are you going to look at? Um, uh, let's, so as we come to the Song of Songs, let's think about remind ourselves of the basic principles uh, of biblical interpretation uh, as we seek to apply them here. First of all, remember to look at the original meaning. All right? So there are some people who want to take Song of Songs as an allegory. Uh, so there's no man, no woman. It's actually God and Israel uh, or, or Christ and the church. Right? Uh, but that's not what the passage is saying. There's a young man and there's a young lady and there's some other characters there as well. Uh, and we need to take them seriously. Uh, we need to take the relationship seriously. We need to take the original context seriously. Secondly, we need to read it as poetry. Uh, poetry is very different from historical narrative. Right? Narrative tells a story from beginning to end. Uh, historical narrative tells a story that is a true story uh, and is to be taken literally and historically. Uh, poetry paints pictures. Uh, it is real, it is true, but it's not literal. Uh, so when the woman says, I'm the Rose of Sharon, uh, it, what we know that she doesn't mean is that she's the reproductive structure, structure of a perennial flowering plant of the genus Rosa and the family of Rosaceae. All right? God, God has given us this part of his word in poetry, and so we need to read it as poetry. Uh, thirdly, we need to read it in context. Uh, that is, we need to read each part of the book in the context of what's before and after, and of course in the context of the book, but we also need to read it in the context of the whole Bible. Uh, and that's how we discover that it points to Christ, because it comes as no surprise to us that it points to Christ, because Christ has told us that the whole scriptures point to him. Uh, and we read about Song of Songs, which is about love and marriage, and we read in the context of Genesis 2, which, where marriage is given by God, and we read Genesis 2 in light of Ephesians 5, which tells us it actually is created by God to show Christ in the church, and so we read Song of Songs and see how it points to Christ in the church. Uh, the young man and the young woman are still the young man and the young woman, uh, they're not just an allegorical device, but they point us uh, to Christ and the church. And if you listen carefully to the sermon later on, you will notice the difference between that and allegory. Uh, and thirdly, we must remember the principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. Right? We actually already applied that when we said we should read Song of Songs in light of the whole Scripture. Uh, but there's another application of this principle in that we can never interpret one part of Scripture in such a way that is repugnant to another part of Scripture. 
right? It's like science lah. In science, you can make an observation, and you, there may be three different ways you can interpret that observation. Uh, you make another observation, uh, and that rules out way one and three, uh, so you conclude the correct interpretation is way two, right? And that's the same with Song of Songs. Uh, many ways that can be, can be interpreted, uh, some ways are incompatible with other parts of Scripture. Uh, for example, uh, one of the issues we need to deal with is whether or not the couple were married when they, when they have sexual intimacy. Uh, you see sexual intimacy here, and then you see marriage there, and you see, hey, they look like they're not married here, and you say, hey, how come they, you, you know what I mean? Right? You wonder what's going on. Uh, from the rest of the Bible, we see that God designed sex to be within marriage, and so he's not going to put in the book in the Bible that celebrates premarital sex, is he? Um, the fact that sex and being married, uh, and then being unmarried, and then sex here, and then unmarried, and then married, and then it's all over the place, gives us a clue that the book is not talking about a linear sequential story. Uh, we know that for certain they are married when the book is written, because after all, chapter 3 describes a wedding. Uh, and so we know the couple are now married. We could postulate the poetry describes their married life as well as stretching back to the time before they're married and speaking those times as well. But it's a bit more than that. You remember how in the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, we see the end happening a number of times. Um, like, you know, when you watch a football game uh, and you see a goal uh, and then you see it again from a different angle and you see it again from a different angle uh, and in slow motion actually, they didn't score three goals you know you know actually it's a one goal huh? okay but they've just that they've shown it again and again from a different perspective and in the song of songs you see different poems that tell different stories about the relationship express different aspects of it some start with a couple yet unmarried at the end of the poem they're together another poem they may start unmarried again so be careful don't jump to conclusions right interpret scripture with scripture Read it in its context, in light of Christ, start with the original meaning. But first of all, pray for God to help you. And that's what we're going to do now uh, as we come to this passage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given the Song of Songs as part of your word. And we thank you that your word is good and is good for us. We thank you that all scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness that we might be equipped for every good work. And so we pray now uh, that you help us as we come to this passage. Uh, help us to see what you are saying to us here. Uh, please point us to your son that we might rejoice in him. Uh, please help us uh, to learn the things that you want us to learn from here. Uh, and Father, we particularly want to pray for anyone here who, for whom it might be difficult uh, for one reason or other uh, to be listening to this part of your word. Uh, we pray that you'll comfort them and strengthen them uh, and that you point them and all of us uh, to Jesus who truly loves us. Uh, and so we commit this time to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the poem that we're looking at today, beginning from chapter 2, verse 8, uh, comes from the perspective of a young woman. Uh, in fact, the only time we hear the man in this passage is when she's quoting him. Uh, but right here, at the beginning of the passage, she hears him, and she's really excited uh, about that. You, you can sense the excitement as she exclaims at the beginning of verse 8, the voice of my beloved. He's the one that she loves. Uh, and she's so happy to hear his voice. She doesn't just hear him, she sees him as well. And look how she describes him in verse 8. Behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. Right? It's, it's, it's a picture of a young man full of energy and excitement, and he's making his way towards her. 
And she describes him in verse 9 as, as like a gazelle or a young stag, right? To her, good-looking, full of energy. And he's coming for her. He's her beloved. And then, in verse 9, continue, as it continues, he's, he's there. He stands there. Behind our wall, she says, gazing through the windows, looking for the lattice. He's there, and he's looking for her. But he's outside, and she's inside. Oh, what's going to happen? If this was a Chinese wedding, her friends would now come along and make him do all kinds of silly things in order to come in. Right? But there's no such thing here. How is he going to win her? He doesn't try to break down the door or anything stupid like that. He's a gentleman. He stands out there and he invites her to come out with him. Verses 10 to 13, we have his invitation and we hear his voice through her. He says, she says, my beloved speaks and says to me, arise my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Uh, we see that repeated again at the end of the invitation, at the end of verse 13, you see that there? Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. That's, that's his message to her. Isn't that beautiful? Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. There's no force. There's no demand. It's, a, it's, just, a, it's just a lovely invitation. He wants her to come with him, to leave her home and go with him, knowing that he loves her and that in his eyes she is beautiful. And between those two invitations, he describes the world in which he wants to take her. It's a world that has woken up from a wet and miserable winter, a world that has blossomed into the freshness of spring. Verse 10, for arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away, for, for behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, the vine are in blossom, they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Spring in many cultures is kind of like a time for love, isn't it? Right? Uh, and here this young man invites this young lady to come away with him into this beautiful world. He's come to call her to be his bride. Now, when I proposed to Judy, uh, I took her to the place we first started going out, uh, late one night. Right? It was a lonely country road not far from Adelaide, uh, near a campsite we used to go to for CF camps. I hid some flowers under a bush, uh, prepared in advance in hope, uh, uh, suggested a walk, she agreed. We got to the appropriate place, I popped the question, she agreed. I gave her the flowers and an interim ring. It, it kind of worked for us. Right? The New Testament says that Jesus is the true bridegroom. And he came for his church. Uh, the old hymn puts it, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. Uh, with his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. He, he showed his love for us, but not just in words, but not just in, in calling us his beloved, but he, he showed his love for us by dying for us on the cross, didn't he? And he suffered the awful penalty of sin on our behalf, so that... that the penalty of sin that otherwise would have left, left us under, under God's eternal condemnation. And then he calls us 
gently and lovingly as the gospel is proclaimed. Come with me. Now is the time. This is the time for salvation. The time has come. God calls, Jesus calls us individuals. Come, follow me. And maybe he's saying that to you today. Uh, Jesus says to local churches which have somehow gone astray, coming up on the screen, Behold, I, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice he will open, uh, and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. But ultimately, he calls us as his universal church, as his people from all over the world, down through the ages, seen together as one body. That is the church, without spot or wrinkle or blemish, holy, because, because he gave himself for her to make her clean. And he says to this church, he says, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. I've got a beautiful new world to take you to. Come, follow me. And that's what his bride will do. Now in the next scene, uh, the picture has changed. Uh, still the young man is calling out to his beloved. Uh, he calls her a dove in verse 14. A dove was considered a, a beautiful and lovely bird, but which sometimes hides and nests in kind of out-of-the-way places. And that's what she's doing. He's the, she's, he's the one she loves. Uh, he's the one she was waiting for. He's the one she was so excited about. But now she's kind of hiding from him. Uh, and so he gently calls her again in verse 14. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Right? Perhaps... Not everything is quite right in their relationship. Perhaps she's hiding because she feels a bit of shame like, like Adam and Eve in the garden. Or maybe there's issues between them that, that need to be talked through. And, but you know, hiding's not, not such a good coping mechanism. Lah. It's okay for a while, but, but if the relationship is going to work, they need to, need to sort things out. Uh, and so again, he gently and lovingly calls her to come, to come out. All right? Now these are not big things, uh, but, but even little things. Uh, if they're not corrected, can spoil things. Uh, and so one of them says, at least poetically in verse 15, uh, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. And our relationship is going well, right? The vineyard's in blossom. But let's deal with those little pests that could wreck it. Uh, let's not anything, let anything uh, spoil our bond. Uh, in relationships, especially relationships that are heading towards marriage, it's very important to deal with issues, isn't it? Uh, that's why at St. Mary's we insist on marriage preparation and counseling uh, before you can get married here. Uh, there's always things to sort out, always expectations to be clear, mindsets to align. Uh, one of the many things we look into is conflict. Uh, we always deal with conflict in different ways. Uh, some people, you know, need to sort things out straight away, all right? Very stressful if there's, a, if there's a conflict that's not been resolved, it's kind of like very tense, very difficult for, for, for you. On, that's, that, now that's good at one level because we shouldn't let the sun go down on our anger. Uh, so, but it may not always be helpful to insist on discussion right now, all right, before the other person's ready because the other person might be one of the people who, who, who kind of like to hide and in conflict they withdraw. And well, that's good at one level because they won't say anything ungodly because they won't say anything at all. Uh, but it, 
might not be helpful to get things properly resolved. And so it's important for each side to understand how the other side functions, to, 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 to reaffirm the relationship so the first person is reassured in the relationship and yet to give enough time for the second person to be able to process things in their own mind first and yet to make sure the discussion happens soon. All right? uh, in this song, the young lady is somewhat withdrawn. Her fiancé is gently and lovingly uh, calling her out. So together they can deal with those little issues that, spoil them, that could spoil their marriage, like those little foxes that could spoil the vineyard. Uh, when it comes to our relationship with Christ, we are now in, still in the engagement period, as it were. All right? He has come for us. He has died for us. We are His. Uh, he has called us. We have followed Him. But the actual wedding day is yet to come. The, the, con the marriage has not yet been consummated. We are not with Him yet in glory. And now is the time when Jesus deals with our issues. And now is the time when he lovingly and gently, step by step, uh, makes us aware of the sin in our lives, uh, sin that could spoil our relationship. So let's not hide from him. And now is actually the time to sort these things out. And now is the time to grow in holiness. Um, I don't know what Jesus, by his spirit, is gently nudging you about from his word, but maybe you do. Uh, and if you do, then don't ignore him. Now, don't hide from him. Now's the time to confess our sins, to amend our ways, knowing that we are secure in the love of our bridegroom. And while that is true of the universal church, for which we are part, that is also expressed in the local church. Uh, and so in our New Testament reading this morning, the Apostle Paul, speaking to the church in Corinth, says that he betrothed them to Christ. Right, he says in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, coming on the screen, he says, I, I do feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the, spirit, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You see, Jesus had called the church to be his, called the church through the gospel. And Paul was the messenger who preached the gospel. To them, like, like Abraham's servant in the Old Testament who, who brought Isaac his bride. Uh, and because it was through Paul's preaching of the gospel that the Corinthian church came to believe in Christ, and Paul can say, I, I betrothed you to Christ. But now he's afraid that they'll be led astray by, from their bridegroom by people who preach a different Christ, a different gospel. And he wants them to listen to him as a true apostle of Christ so they're not led astray. And of course, we too don't, we need to be wary, don't we? Uh, as a church, uh, of those who would lead us away from our bridegroom. He has called us in the gospel, and we have followed. We've been betrothed to him. Our marriage will be consummated when he returns, and meanwhile, we must do whatever it takes to be faithful to him and deal with whatever it is that would distance us from our bridegroom. Well, you remember in the first poetic scene this morning, the young man came and, and called the young woman to come away with him. Now, that is towards marriage. Uh, the implication is that she's heard his call and responded in love, and so they're engaged. And the, and the second poet is seen. They have to deal lovingly with issues that could affect their relationship, and that's, that's part of being engaged. Uh, but in the next scene, the couple are together. He's come for her. He's called her. They've dealt with their issues. Now, now they are together in marriage. Uh, for the young lady says in verse 16, My beloved is mine, and I am his. My beloved is mine, 
and I am his. That, that mutual belonging uh, is the essence of marriage. Uh, as someone once said, the, 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 the consummation of love is not sex, but relationship. Now, relationship includes sex, uh, the marriage relationship, but, but, but sex is not, not the sum of it. It's just part of what is meant to be a, a beautiful relationship of mutual loving belonging. My beloved is mine, and I am his. Now, of course, it's very important to note that this belonging is mutual. Right? It means that one party can't use this belonging as an excuse to overpower the other because she belongs to him or he belongs to her because their belonging is genuinely a mutual thing. Right? You can't use belonging as an excuse for control because belonging goes both ways. Uh, but belonging to each other implies a loving and proactive giving of oneself to the other. Uh, it means establishing one's identity in relationship with the other. Uh, as we say in our wedding vows, all that I am I give to you, and all that I have I share with you. Uh, later on in 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul will encourage married people to keep giving themselves to each other sexually in the context of that mutual belonging. And it's only in the context of that mutual belonging that it's appropriate for the beloved to, in verse 16, graze among the lilies, which may be a picture of physical intimacy. And she invites him to do that, in verse 17, until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Uh, probably talking about all night, uh, until dawn, or it could be until the end of their lives. And either way, in verse 17, she bids him to turn to her and to be like that beautiful and swift gazelle or young stag, uh, on the cleft mountains, another, another picture uh, of intimacy. Sisters and brothers, the day will come for the marriage of the church, the bride of Christ, to Jesus, our bridegroom. And we will collectively enjoy intimacy with him. That is the true marriage, the, the true intimacy, uh, to which all human marriages are meant to be pointing to. And what does this intimacy look like? Well, Revelation chapter 21, verse, 22, verse, verse 2, we see the new Jerusalem. Again, that's all God's people together. That's the church prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's, it's the wedding day. And in verse 3, we, describe, we see that intimacy described. He says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The day will come that we are in God's presence as God's people, loving Him and enjoying Him forever. See, the best thing about the new creation is being with Him, is relating to Him intimately as our God. And on that day, verse 4 continues, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And in that context, collectively, we will say, my beloved is mine and I am his. Well, going back to the song now, uh, we've seen him call her. Uh, we've seen them deal with the issues of their relationship. We've seen the culmination of that relationship in marriage. And that should be the end of the song. But it's not. And in the next section, the romance is suddenly lost. Because, you see, the marriage described in the Song of Songs is not the real marriage between Christ and the church, even though it points towards it. 
all human marriages fail to live up to Christ in the church, some in a more devastating way than others. Even this one fails to reach Christ in the church. And the picture we see here is painted in, in dreamlike. It's dreamlike. It may be a dream, but it may not. But actually, it doesn't matter because the language is poetic. It's full of symbols rather than literal. Uh, remember how she wanted him to, to graze among the lilies all night? Well, in this picture, she wakes up, or she dreams that she wakes up, expecting to find him there in their marital bed, but hey, he's not. And here's how she puts it in chapter 3, verse 1. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. Not as she calls him the one whom my soul loves. She'll call him that again in verse 2. She'll call him that again in verse 3. She'll call him that again in verse 4. Now, she loves him. Even though he's not there, he's kind of disappeared, she still loves him. And when she realizes he's gone, she decides to do a risky thing. And the thing she's about to do doesn't come from anger or insecurity or a need to be in control. She loves him. It comes from love, a deep, deep love. And so she's going to go out in the middle of the night to go looking for him. Now in verse 2, I will arise now and go to the city, to the streets and the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. And she's been searching, 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 cannot find. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Uh, and instead of finding him, she is found, not by him, but by the watchman. Uh, the people who jaga the city. Verse 3, the watchman found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? She asked them. Later on, we will discover these watchmen are not to be trusted. Uh, but here, but here, just after she meets them, she finds the object of her quest. Verse 4, scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. She finds him. Now, we're not told what he was doing, not told why he was out there. Did they have a fight earlier? Does he have problems he hasn't shared with her he's got to go and deal with? Is he prone to wonder? Is he in the streets looking for other women? Whatever it is, when the husband was gone, the wife took the initiative to go and save the marriage. We're not told how. But in verse 4, she brings him back to the place of intimacy. It says, I held him and would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house, into the chamber of her who conceived me. Uh, sometimes in marriage, one party has to act to save the marriage. Uh, sometimes one party checks out, at least emotionally, and the other one has to decide whether, to, whether or not to lovingly pursue them and to try and make it work. Uh, in this poem, in this song, the wife takes extraordinary risks to find her husband and to bring him back. And doing something like that is never easy and is sometimes dangerous, at least for your heart. And in this sinful world, sometimes it's not even possible. Now, there are times that no matter what we do, the other party won't respond for whatever reason. But can I say, if you're in a marriage and you sense something is not right, 
please do something. Please take the initiative, pray, talk to your partner, get help together. In the real marriage, when Christ is married to his church, these problems will be no more. Because all these marriage problems are, in the end, caused by sin. But on that day, sin will be no more. And so even the problems that we face in our present marriages help us look forward to the real marriage. The challenges and issues that we have to deal with, the threats to our marriages, the, the deep pain of marriage breakdown cause us to strive toward the real marriage where there is not only real eternal intimacy but real eternal faithfulness and real eternal love. Uh, and so friends, whether or not we are married in this life, the real marriage is the real place of intimacy that we actually seek. And it's all our present marriages ought to be, but cannot be because of sin. It's all that our present marriages, no matter how good they might be, can merely reflect, but cannot fulfill because they are only pointers. It's actually the real marriage that we need and the only the real marriage that we really need. Now, so far we've seen the bridegroom come for his bride and invite her to come away with him. We've seen them deal with issues before their marriage. We've seen them married and consummating their marriage. We've seen them with marriage problems only to be brought back to intimacy again. And all this talk of intimacy leads the young woman to give a caution uh, to the young women who are observing this. A caution, actually, we heard last week. Uh, she says in verse 5, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And the wise writer of this book has, has repeated this caution for us. Uh, uh, we would do well to take it to heart. Right? If it is not the time for marital love, then, then don't stir up the desire for it. The time for the consummation of marriage is marriage. Do not, even by meditating on this song, uh, kindle passions prematurely. Rather, as people who are betrothed to Christ, let us seek to stir up our love for him. Let us be reminded that he came for us let us be reminded that he loved us and died on the cross to pay for our sins so he could make us his own. That he rose again as our loving Lord and has called us through the gospel to come away with him, to be his bride. And let us remember once again that he is patiently preparing us for our wedding, helping us to get rid of the things that spoil our relationship now and preparing us for the day that we will be with him forever in the real and happy marriage that lasts for all eternity. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you uh, for this part of, of the scriptures. Uh, we thank you that they point to your son who has come for us, who has invited us to, to come with him. 
We thank you that we, as, as part of your church, have, have come. Thank you that, we are, that he is working in our hearts, in our lives, in our church, to, to change us, uh, to fit us, to prepare us uh, for our marriage with, with, with him forever. Uh, we pray that you help us to have soft hearts uh, towards him, uh, knowing that he loves us, uh, we pray that you would enable us to, uh, to deal with whatever issues that might, uh, that might spoil this relationship. Uh, Father, we look forward to the day uh, when we will be with him uh, in glory, uh, enjoying the perfect marriage forever. You know, Father, as we, as we um, uh, live now in this, in this broken world, uh, we thank you for, for marriage. We thank you for the marriages among us that are, that are going well. Uh, and we pray that we wouldn't put too much, um, uh, too much pressure on them to make them into the real marriage because we know that uh, the real marriage is, is with Christ in the church. And we pray for marriages that are struggling uh, in some way or other. And we pray that, um, uh, that those who need to, to take action uh, would be would be willing to do that, um, uh, even if it's hard, uh, and be willing to uh, to reach out uh, and to and to and to work towards um, uh, rectifying things in in marriages. And Father, we pray for those who um, uh, are struggling uh, um, uh, uh, outside of marriage for one reason or other. Uh, we pray that you strengthen their hearts. Uh, we pray that uh, you will enable uh, each one of us uh, to keep our eyes on Jesus and the true marriage that we find in him. Uh, Father, uh, have mercy upon us all, we pray, uh, and, uh, and help us uh, to keep uh, trusting in your Son. Uh, and we pray all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.